0: So, welcome everyone, uh, Monday evening, um, 8 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Mountain Time. My good friend uh, Vitaly Axel Nelson is with us. I've known Vitaly for a number of years, tremendous value investor, tremendous human being. I've learned so much from him, and I'm going to embarrass him a little bit. Um, oh, my God. Vitaly is the reason why I am here. Um... Last fall, when I was casting about trying to figure out what to do for my next gig, Vitaly said, George, you really should be pay attention to your social media presence. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And I didn't know what a Twitter space was or anything. So, Vitaly, it's all your fault. <laughs> so, here we are, 30, <laughs> 39,000 Twitter followers later. Um, you know, 70 spaces plus. An ETF coming out in four weeks. Um it all started with a conversation, Vitali. So I thank you. I thank you. Uh,
1: I think you have a real talent for this. Right.
0: Well, we'll see it was how e- that goes. It was, it was easy to see. So anyway, thanks so much. So um, we're really honored to have Vitali here tonight. Um, and for those of you who don't know, he has written uh, Vitali. Is this your fourth book now? Um, soul
1: it's in my the third, game?
0: third, third book. Third book. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The soul, soul in the game has come out. Um, some the Art of a Meaningful Life. Um, it's an incredible read. Um, it touches so many aspects of, of life, uh, not to mention investing, but a really, really delightful read, and I couldn't put it down. I, I had the book. Vitaly had sent me the book a couple of months ago, and um, my homework assignment for this uh, space was I had to read the book. So there. <laughs> so now, now I've, I've read the book, Vitaly, so uh, this should make for an interesting <laughs> conversation. So let's start off. Um, just a word about yourself for those that don't, for those folks out there who don't know you. Uh, IMA, maybe just talk just a second about what you do, and then we'll get into your life history in the book. And then we're going to get into markets. Vitaly, floor is yours.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, George. And first of all, I really appreciate you hosting this uh, space and, uh, and, do, and you host in other spaces. And I listen to a lot of them and you are, you have great guests and you're a phenomenal host. And, uh, you know, kind of, you kind of, you're you're a benevolent dictator, but that's what it takes to you know, <laughs> to, to do that. So you uh, have to be
0: kind <laughs> of. Always going to do this. You're right. And I, I qualify on both counts? So go
1: ahead. Well, I called you a benevolent dictator. Just, there you, you know, go. You know, so, um. All right. Um. So, 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 you so, so a...
0: yeah, Vitaly Star. What, what is? Tell us about you. You're, you've got a shop in Denver. You, you, you. What, what yeah. is IMAUSA.com? Is, is that it? Yeah. IMA yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay,
1: Yeah. So I'm a CEO and a CIO of a IMA, which is a value investment firm in Denver. And we basically, uh, so someone who you know who's retired or has a NASDAQ comes to us, gives us their life savings and says, Vitaly, please don't screw it up. And you know, and that's and that's basically what we do. We you know, we manage money for high net worth individuals, and uh, we put uh, create a portfolio of of uh, individual stocks. It's you know portfolio of twenty 25 stocks, twenty five stocks maybe thirty stocks, high quality companies, and uh, and our goal is that you know the portfolio to kind of to get through any market through any economy. That's basically kind of the. Uh, that's what IMA does, and so I'm at heart a hard, die hard, well, you know, die hard value investor, and uh, you know, you know, I spend most of my time reading financial reports, listening to conference calls, you know, doing that kind of stuff. So,
0: so you survived the uh, the, the value investing wipeout, and now uh, it would seem that uh, times are a bit better. That's, that's terrific. So, Vitaly, let's go to um, you, you you didn't follow the normal route um, for people. Um, in this business, you have a very interesting background now. Uh, so Vitaly, you, you were born in 1973, but what's more in from Russia, but what I find really interesting, is not just you're a Russian Jew, we can talk about that, but you also come from Murmansk, which is <laughs> for those of us here in the states, it's always this crazy Russian place with submarines and it's way the hell up North. So you just tell us just a little bit. What was it like growing up in, in Murmansk? Vitaly? Yeah.
1: So if you look at the map of Russia, you look at the left and you go high. And then you go higher and higher again. And when you reach the tip of Norway, it's right there. Like, it's basically, it's located above the Arctic Circle, where there's a permafrost. And in the winter time, the sun basically comes out for, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes a day. And uh, for months. Uh, I'll tell you the story. I would go to school in the, in the, in the morning, and it's dark. And sometimes during the day, the sun would come out for twenty minutes, and I'd miss it. And then I, go, I would go home, and it's dark again. So I, I basically there were periods of time in the winter time where I would not see sun for months. And uh, it was a sun was a, such a big deal that you know when, when it came, you know, when it, in the end of February, early March, kind of the sun would start to come out more and more. And they even have a celebration called uh, the Day of Sun. So um, it was a very peculiar place. Um, And so I grew up not just in Russia, but in Soviet Russia. So the economy, um, at the time, actually, I did not know a single person who worked for private enterprise. Every single enterprise in Russia, in Soviet Russia, or in Soviet Union, for that matter, was basically owned by the government. From barbershop to shipyard, to, I don't know, to pizzeria. Every single one was owned by, uh, uh, by government. And by the way, just, there are some people who have nostalgia towards, the new generation has nostalgia towards socialism. I tell you, just don't. It's, it's not fun. Um, but anyway, so, uh, so we came to United States in 1991 and I came directly to Denver and, and, uh,
0: Okay. All right, so so Vitaly, we lost you. We were talking about, um, you know, uh, it was dark all the time, and then we kind of lost you. I don't, oh, I, don't, I apologize.
1: I don't know what I apologize. So yeah, sorry, yeah, I apologize. Um, so you know, so it, it was dark all the time, and uh, when not just in Russia, but it was a Soviet Russia. So every single enterprise in Russia right. was owned by uh, government. You know, from you know, from barber shops to shipyards to anything, right? And and I'll tell you, I, I saw how horrible the government is running at businesses. Um, uh, when I was growing up, the store had only two types of sugar, and they the only difference between one and the other was the price. There was a six you know cents difference in price, and it was like that for decades. And nice. uh, so anyway, so this is kind of my story growing up in Russia, and it was a, I grew up in a very warm, good family, and uh, so I'm lucky.
0: Uh, so, 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 you, so you wind up in Denver, Colorado, and then what was that like for you?
1: Well, so yeah, so our trip to the United States actually likes the drama that normal immigration stories you know, would have, because we flew from Moscow to Frankfurt, and in Frankfurt uh, to Denver, I mean to New York, Pan Am oversaw the flight in the economy class. So they put us in the first class. So I flew to the United States first class. Um, when I arrived to Denver, my first it was a huge culture shock. And let me tell you why. Because I learned about the United States from watching Hollywood movies. And in the movies, they spend most of the time showing you the, the, the coast, either the West Coast or East Coast. So my perception of the United States was either they're skyscrapers or palm trees. And then I come to this Denver, you know, to this place, Denver. There are no palm trees. It's very flat. Most buildings are uh, two stories. And uh,
0: <laughs> uh, so you're, so you're in, you're, you're in Denver, and it's snowing. It's like, where the heck are the palm trees? That, that means, the, yeah. Well, uh,
1: yeah, or, or skyscrapers. Forget about, you know, okay, maybe, okay, maybe it, no palm trees, but where are the skyscrapers? Because I've like my perception of America was like all these tall buildings everywhere. Um... Anyway, so that, that's what, that was the first shock. Um, then you went to the store, and obviously, you know, there's a huge difference you know, between American stores and Russian stores at the time. And uh, I said, so George, this is a true story. About my first 18 years of my life, I think I had one bottle of Coke or Pepsi. I don't know. I don't remember what it was. I made up for that in the first two years of my life in the United States. I made up for all my, you know, lack of consumption of Coke and Pepsi. Because it, <laughs> uh, uh, so that's, yeah, anyways, so, that, so then, then my family settled in Denver. I went to school here, uh, uh, got my degrees in finance. I actually taught uh, investments at CUD Denver for seven years. And, uh, you know, then I joined IMA in 1997 and been with IMA since. And, uh, that's basically, That's and I awesome. wrote my first book in 2007 and my second one in 2010.
0: That's awesome. So, Vitaly, let me ask you, um, what for the average American, um, I'm sure Russia's changed a lot since you were there, but mm. I'm, sure, I'm sure you're still keeping tabs on what's going on. What is the, let me ask you this. What are the the best things that you have coming from Russia you know, as, as a uh, Russian Jew, growing up in the dark all the time, and what are the biggest disadvantages that you've had?
1: Well, my, the, my biggest, you no, know, in the first couple of months, the first year to, you know, obviously the language, in which was a disadvantage. Um, because, you know, I, it took me a while to, you know, to learn how to speak English. But then, and then also it took me a while to acclimate to, to culture, because Americans are very different from Russians. By the way, George, when I say this, excluding you, Okay, because Americans are usually not very direct. They smile. And, and then when they smile, like, you know, usually things are good. I remember I was fired. Like, I, my, my first job, I worked for the health club. And I was fired, I don't know, three weeks later. And throughout this whole process, everybody smiled at me. And I still don't know why I was fired. In fact, when, <laughs> while I was getting fired, the guy was smiling at me. Which is like not, like... I promise you that that's not the experience you would have uh, if you were in Russia. so uh, <laughs> um, now uh, when you talk about, when you, when you talk about the, uh, I had this I think immigrants from like I can speak for immigrants from Russia or from eastern or from Eastern Europe, they have this advantage because they have this huge burning desire to succeed because you can see how the contrast between, you know, of where you came from and what this country has to offer is so great, that basically lights up so much fuel and so much fire under you. And I would argue that was a huge, huge advantage for me.
2: Uh,
1: and uh, I didn't appreciate it at the time, but I would argue that, you know, usually immigrants do, you know, especially from Eastern Europe, do fairly well. And that's the reason for that, I think.
0: Right. Um, before we go, uh, just I'm sure it'll come up in questions, but um, maybe just up top, um, do you care to offer any insights or opinions, thoughts, anything about uh, what's going on with Putin and Russia right now and um, how you see things playing out? What's your own personal view?
1: I, You know, I, my, my personal view is so biased because I used to say, proudly that I'm from Russia and from USSR. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm truly embarrassed for Russia. And I, I never thought this war, like, this war could happen. And I think this is, a lot of people would probably agree with that sentiment. Um, the, I am hopeful and, uh, and, but I think the success of this war will really depend on one factor. How much how much patience the west will have to support uh, ukraine in this fight because at some point especially when it's close to winter when the europeans will have to start paying the price for this war it's you know it's not you know they may say you know what let's you know maybe maybe we'll they they will want to put the end to this war and uh, and and this you know and this therefore the support you know, to ukraine may decline
0: well, you know, exactly. what you know, do you think Putin's motivation is? He wants to put the empire back together. I think so.
1: I think this is. Yeah, you know, I think, I think that's. Um, I like, and I, I was mistaken in the beginning, like well before the war, that it was really about NATO. It's not. Uh, I mean, NATO was a sclerotic organization that basically had no purpose. It was not a threat to Russia at all. This is really about. Uh, Put in, you know, yeah, exactly the, you know, the game back together. Yes.
0: Got it. Okay. Let's move on to the book now. There's so much to cover. So one of the, and again, it's a delightful read. It's an easy read, but one of the overarching topics in the book, but stoicism Mm -hmm. and you spend a lot of time on stoicism and I know you subject studied study quite a lot. So deep and deep knowledge of stoicism just maybe briefly give us a sort of cliff notes version of what it is and why it's important to you. And what are the key, key points that, you know, that are important for you in terms of how it's, how it's, have you lived your life and advice you would give to others.
1: Yeah. You know, so when, whenever I hear philosophy or stoic philosophy, my, you know, my my thoughts were just a bunch of, you know, marble statues of dead folks uh, and language that I, you know, like, that I can't or, or or you know or uh, when I stumbled on Stoic philosophy, I realized it's anything. It's it's nothing like that. I mean, yeah, there's still statues of dead people, uh, but it's a it's a beautiful. It's a what it, the way I look at Stoics, it's an operating system for life. Um, it's a this philosophy came out of uh, ancient Greece about two thousand years ago. Um, but when you read, and there, there's basically three main figures in the philosophy, uh, actually four: you know, Zeno, who was the, uh, the kind of the founder of the philosophy, but most to this day are by basically Marcus Aurelius, who was the, uh, emperor of Rome, uh, Seneca, who was uh, a senator, but he was he was like the Renaissance man. Centuries before uh, Renaissance, you know, he was a playwright, he was a senator, he was uh, a banker, you know, uh, etc. And then Epictetus, who was a slave. So those are three main characters, kind of in a in a stoic philosophy. And when you read their writings today, a lot of them, like um, they could like you feel like they could have been written yesterday, you know because they, all they, what they write is about a human human condition, and human condition has not changed in 2,000 years. We are, you know, we are as uh, restless now as we were 2,000 years ago. But anyway, so the way I look at Stoic philosophy, it's an operating system for life, and this is my kind of interpretation of this. Um, when we are born, we are become with hardware and software, like, you know, the, kind of the operating system. And the operating system is basically most um, uh, obviously you know we know you know there is a uh, some kind of bias prog- programming inside of it so you know how how to breathe you know etc regulates to heartbeat etc but how to act what to do etc that operating system you know slowly is written by our parents it's getting impacted by our friends by books we read by circumstances. Um, what stoic, stoic philosophy offers uh, a kind of a more formalized operating system of that and, uh, and where you can reduce your uh, volatility of your negative emotions. And by by doing that, you improve the quality of your life. This is kind of my kind of, high-level overview of Stoicism.
0: So... Um... Is it something um, that you um, I know you, you write extensively on in the book? Yeah. It, it really it really is something that you've taken on. It's not just of interest. This has been it's really impacted your life, the what the way you can talk. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So George, it's a of philosophy, it's a practice. In uh, in the there's a there's this uh, Chinese proverb, even though I'm not even sure it's Chinese proverb, It could have been written by lumberjack jack a lumberjack John or something but it wouldn't be as, as interesting if you know if you know, if I said it was written by lumberjack John but it's a knowing and not doing is not knowing so if you learn stoic philosophy but and so you know it but you don't practice it you might you know you, you might as well you know not know it so it's it's a it's a, it's a really practical philosophy where you by by practicing it, you're trying to reprogram, like in my years, almost five decades of my life, of five de- five decades of behavior. So it's a practice in which I'm gonna I'm gonna try to practice. I'm gonna fail. I'm gonna succeed. I'm gonna fail, and when I fail, I'm gonna try to improve and keep going forward. So let me give you. So let me tell you what, like, really, uh, what really brought me to it. Epictetus has this. Um, framework called control and the academy of control basically says and it sounds extremely simple some things are, are up to us some things aren't many things aren't what is but what you discover what's up to us are so few things uh, it's how it's you know it's how we behave it's what what our values are it's how we react everything else is not up to us how how what your boss tells you is not up to you. What uh, when you drive to work, if you have red lights every single on every single streetlight, that's not. And so, once you realize how few things are up to you, you start focusing on them, and realize you can You try to control things you can control, and things you can't control, you let them go. That little realization could completely change one's life. Because once you, like, you know, it's a, in, uh, anyway, so that's a, that's like one of the kind of, um, I, would argue, I would argue that's probably one of the most important, important frameworks that Stoics has to offer. But there's a lot more,
0: more. Batali, um, a lot of what you're um, articulating, uh, I, I'm not a religious person, but what little study I've done in Judaism, uh, I read in the Bible, a lot of those tenets are there. It would seem almost like every self-help book you can find now is, (laughs) it's written, it was written thousands of years ago. This is literally nothing new under the sun. Um, And so it's, it's really, it's really amazing to to, to, to hear you recite that. Um,
1: It's it's, kind of interesting, George. um, Early draft of my book, I had a few of my threads, and they were religious. Some were kind of Orthodox Jews, some were Christians, and all of them made the same comment. Yep. that a lot of them reminds them of uh, of their religious scripture.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. All right, so now let's talk about what what. Let's I'm going to jump around here, um, yeah. and, and we're going to get to the market. So we'll pick up the pace here a little bit. But there are a couple of things that jumped out at me. A couple of passages in here. Um, again, going back to um, the Stoics, you talk, and now I'm thinking of Twitter. Now, I, mean, I don't know what they would have said about Twitter, but you speak about this, okay, um, uh-huh. and and so I'll just quote it: In ancient Greece and Rome, parents took their kids to study oratory skills from the teachers called sophists. The word "sophisticated" has sophist, sophist in its root. Sophists focused on the art of persuasion through both emotion and reason, and kids were taught to argue both sides of an argument. Stoics, on the other hand, put the emphasis mainly on reason, not emotions, in their communications. I don't know. It sounds to me like we might do a lot better these days with having more Stoics and fewer sophists in contemporary times, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, well. Yeah. And I, by the way, I'm I'm guilty. Like as a writer, <laughs> as a writer, when I write, I'm guilty of being a sophist. But if I if I was a stoic as a writer, probably nobody would read me. Um, but it's a very important. Uh, this sophistry is extremely important for a couple of reasons. Number one, now I'm talking to uh, when I talk to corporate management you realize that uh, for you to become a CEO of a company, a CFO of a company, you have to be a very good person. Your your skills of articulation have to be impeccable. So whenever you listen to, and I find myself, whenever I listen to somebody who is a terrific speaker, I have to remember that this person, even though this person may be not lying to me, and they they may have a lot of substance, I know that my perception of what they're saying is also clouded by their oratory skills. So when when that happens, I always I remind myself about this and try to kind of write down the bullet points of what they're saying. So I'm not so I'm not swayed by the emotion and by the skill of the delivery, but I'm really looking at the essence. That's point number one. Point number two, we have to be very careful not to be sophists to ourselves. Now that, like, A lot of times what ha- happened, we do a lot of self-talk when we talk to ourselves, right? And a lot of times when something happens to us, we over-dramatize it by, you know, saying, oh, my, my life sucks, and this is bad, and this is bad, and this is bad. Stoics would tell you to try to kind of um, bring it down to the bare bones. Marcus Aurelius uh, and, uh, had this analogy. You know, when somebody brings you This like you know when you go to a French restaurant and they have the uh, fish that and they have like half a two paragraphs describe what that fish is. Um, You know it's a salmon from uh, from Alaska
0: and yeah 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 yeah, exactly caught from Vitali's backyard. You know and it was it was kept as a pet in his aquarium for nine months. Exactly yeah exactly that whole nonsense exactly yeah yeah
1: exactly That's sophistry right and what Marcus Aurelius would say he would say what do you have in use a dead fish with some. <laughs> okay, but, but but you know what? That is such an important quality, because a lot of times we kind of we, we do this to ourselves. We practice this sophistry, and a lot of times we take out of small problem, we blow them up into bigger problems, and that <laughs> you know, kind of you know, ruins our life. So, Vitaly, I'm sorry,
0: you're cra- you're you're cracking me up because for all those or all those in the in the space right now in the room who like sushi. Cut the bullshit. It's a piece of uncooked fish. Let's get real here. Okay. So, That's right. And, and exactly. Right. And rice. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right, listen, we can go on. I yeah. you have a wonderful chapter about abracadabra. You're talking about the means, four modes of communi- communicating, the preacher, the prosecutor, the politician, the science, and the scientist. And the first three of them all involved some type of emotion or posturing. And really you want to be the scientist. You want to just, you want to know the facts, nothing but the facts. And so, Anyway, there's, the book is so rich, we could we could spend hours talking about it, but I know we want to talk about sure. markets as well. And sure. so um, we're going to, you know, I'm sure we're gonna, we'll gonna. get a lot of questions from people about the book. We'll come back on the book, but let's just talk about the markets a little bit here. Sure. I can remember uh, being in space with you, you know, last year. And, in, you know, uh, I imagine you're having a pretty decent year right now. So maybe put this in a bigger context. You've been around, you've seen cycles. Um. Um. Does this from. What is Mark? What are your sort of high, most highly held convictions right now about the market? Like, you. Where do you think we are on the cycle? What do you like? What don't you like? You don't have to get individual names, but yeah. yeah. You know. What are your conviction ideas right now, Vitaly?
1: Well, let me talk about the market first. I think the. If you look at the market today, it reminds me kind of 1999 2000 bubble. Like it's kind of the. This is the, I call it dot com 2.0 bubble. Okay. It's it's never identical. Right. It's not you know, it's not identical. But there was a but there was a lot of speculation. Yeah, you know, there was a lot of speculation and there were a lot of companies, good companies and bad companies got incredibly overvalued in ninety nine to thousand. The same thing happened this time around as well. And um, what's happening, uh, so when the dot com bubble burst it was rotation to value, so that's happening, and there was a lot of kind of uh, 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 the market was declining, but there was a lot of, you know, rallies, um, you know, and uh, and I think we are basically kind of, you know, the dot-com stocks are going through one of those uh, periods right now, kind of, you know, kind of, you know, kind of uh, bouncing back. Uh, again, this is, I could end up being completely wrong, but this is this is what it looks like to me. And uh, I look, um, I the last couple of days, I spent a lot of time looking at some of the uh, the portfolios of some of the investors who I actually admire you know whose portfolio is getting completely bummed out and you know the, the people I know who, who are very good at identifying and I look at those companies and they decline 50 60 percent and I swear to God they still need to decline another 30 or 40 before they become you know mildly interesting um, so the, like so when I look for stocks today, Despite the decline, in the you know the markets are still expensive, and the uh, companies that generate cash flows, those haven't really declined that much. I mean, the I should I shouldn't say I should say it differently, the companies that lack the excitement and generate cash have really declined that much. So um, overall, I think the uh, like our new accounts today, about only seventy percent invested. Invested, so we only have about know, we still have about. Thirty percent cash for new accounts, uh, and one uh, of my favorite sectors. Um, I so we we own pipeline. Uh, you know, we own pipeline companies, and I think those are those businesses are kind of going uh, through uh, very interesting uh, transition. Because if you look at the previous, you know, like from uh, let's say Southend, no, 2013, I don't know, through 2015 or whatever, you know, like, they, um, they were basically over, overbuilding and they were leveraging up and they had a lot of projects uh, and they basically just focused on maintaining the dividend and at the same, at the same time, uh, just, you know, there <laughs> a lot of pipelines. So, long story short, the industry went through a kind of... Uh, they they found Jesus again, and now basically you know they are today they build in very few new pipelines, and they're returning capital to shareholders. Uh, so I look at these businesses, all the pipelines that they invested in, in you know seven years ago are coming online, so they start to generate cash flows. Now you have these companies that are have a very predictable, stable cash flows, are just you know you know paying this huge dividends which they can support. And what I also like about this business is about pipelines. If you think about, number one, their revenues uh, have inflation protection. Because most of the time, they get uh, PPI or CPI, like PPI, like uh, indexation to their revenues. That's number one. Number two, and this is very important to understand, their maintenance capital expenditures are, ver- are very, very small in relation to their cash flows. Like I'll give you an example. I think like... Uh, it's a, like if you look at the enterprise products, and I'm now going from my memory. I think they are like praying cash flows, maybe like seven or eight billion dollars. Their maintenance capital expenditures are only three or four hundred million dollars a year. You serious? Some, some tiny number. I, I mean, you know, I'm trying to show the magnitude. It's very very small. Because think about pipeline. It's a it's really it's a term asset. It's a long-term asset that really requires very little maintenance. So even if you have inflation in metals, et cetera, the impact on their, the amount of expansion is going to be only overall, it's going to be very small. And at the same time, we are going to be producing more in United States of natural gas and oil, et cetera. So they'll benefit from that.
0: Right. Um, so, so these guys are more volume dependent than they are price dependent. Is that fair to oh, say? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Yes. And in a, in a and they're, and the pricing for their uh, the pri- revenues, uh, if you know if infl- if there is inflation the revenues go up if there is deflation they don't, so it's a kind of it's a you're protected both ways. Got it. Um, so that's probably you know without going to specific stocks that's probably the industry. Right. That's what I, I
0: really like. like. like- yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Vitaly. Let me ask you a different question. So you're pure you're bottom up guy. Uh, yeah and So. I'm sure you have a macro view, but you're bottom up guys. So the extent to which you're fully invested depends on how many ideas you can find. So you're saying new accounts now would have 30% cash. Well, let's wind the clock back. I mean, I mean, let's say at, at it's at the absolute bottom for value investing, say, you know, end of, uh, 2020 beginning of 2021, you know, 18, 20 months ago. I mean, was there a time when you would be like, you know, how high would you would you get fully in? Were no, you, I, were I you 100% not, invested
1: at some point? Yeah, like maybe 95 or something like that. Yeah, it's
0: probably... what's happened, As a lot of these stocks went up, you just as you find fewer things to buy, you just let the cash build up. Is that the idea?
1: Yeah, let me. So the so that's a good question. So, Josh, what we do for every single company in the portfolio, we become a fair value calculated. And and then we look at the fair value and in relation to the price, the greater the, the discount. So, like let's say the company is, we think is worth hundred dollars. Sure. At at sixty dollars, it's gonna be two percent position. At fifty dollars, it's gonna be three. At forty dollars, gonna be four. four. But, five, no, over I get it. it. I get it. So get it. so the so the and that's say and we do this now and now we apply it. On the full, you know, like on a full portfolio. So when, when, uh, when we have nothing, you know, when they when we have a lot of, like, you know, like in this case, sixty dollars stocks, we're gonna have smaller position sizes, you know, for, for new stocks. Or we, you know, if they if this company is now at eighty dollars, we would just not be buying it for new accounts at
0: all. Right, hey, Vitaly, that, that's a very good point, Vitaly. Let me ask you um, two questions. How large would, the, would a large position? Be? percent? And also, how many names will you have in the portfolio? So we have about
1: 20 to 30 names. Um, I think the largest position at costs would be about 7%. Um, today, we have a position which is about maybe 10 to 12%, but that's not at cost.
0: That's, you know, that's a... Got it. Got it. Got it, and so you're always just reassessing relative to target price what the risk reward is, and that yeah. that right. That, that that's,
1: that's right. Yeah, I think probably average position probably about five percent.
0: Right, so. and you still and and I mean I know you don't show it, but just, yeah. there just just must be plenty and plenty of stocks that just look so wildly overpriced to you, know?
1: Yeah, so we just we just we look one stock at a time, and we look at it, and we kind of look at the company's quality, and then we say how much the company is worth. And if there is margin of safety, and a lot of times you find that there's a lot of dollar twenty, dollar thirty dollars, and we need to buy forty cent dollars or fifty cent right. dollar. So yeah.
0: Could I let me just? I'm going to ask one broad question, then we'll go to some questions from the uh, the folks in the room. Uh, consumer stocks, um, yeah. consumer, you know, it's pressure, but consumers are coming under a lot of pressure now with real co- incomes being eroded by rising inflation. Food, food and energy, well, it's coming off, but it's, it went up so much, my God. Um, and in particular, retail, um, mm-hmm. where I think, you know, there have been a lot of high profile blow ups. Uh, retail uh, companies like Walmart target too much inventory. Mm-hmm. Sales are coming way below budget, you know, and the outlook is pretty bleak. Do you have any um, thoughts on consumer stocks broadly or no. by some? Do you have any thoughts on consumer yeah. stocks? Yeah,
1: so be. yeah, yeah. No, I think, George, I think you have a question. I am very concerned about inflation. And obviously so is everybody else now. But like I can see like let me just mention some of the sources of inflation aside from the in addition to the what our government did over the years. Okay. But in addition, you know, so but we also have uh, you know Russia causes you know increasing commodities. Uh, but Russia is also impacting uh, prices uh, the supply of uh, um, fertilizers and fertilizer, which you know of all calories going forward uh, also we have deglobalization where globalization was deflationary glo- uh, global, you know, deglobalization is inflationary like you know uh, and high interest rates are actually if you think about like uh, high infl- interest rates drive prices of everything higher as well so you know when you when you bought Lexus and you got zero percent financing for five years, that's gone. So anyway, so all these things from different directions will be impacting consumer and discretionary income. And by the way, just let me just give you one uh, data point: when in, uh, when thirty year mortgage when uh, uh, goes from a uh, two point eight percent to five point two. That 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 costs the average consumer about seven thousand dollars more a year of interest payments. Wow! Uh, so on the on the, on the median home on the which is about three hundred I forget now the number uh, four hundred something thousand dollars now whatever that number is. Okay, so that is about ten percent of median income. median income is about seventy thousand dollars roughly or sixty something. So that's about ten percent of somebody's uh, income pre-tax. Um. So yes, yeah, so I'm a very concerned about consumer, and so we reduce our consumer exposure today is almost nothing. So yeah. we reduced it, you know, you know discretionary consumer spending to almost
0: nothing. That That's way. great. That's great. Okay, so let's just hold it right there. So we'll get over some questions now from the rest of the room. Um, so first, we're going to go with uh, at op outdoors o v o, and then Marcus Aurelius. Ovo, the floor is yours. Thanks, George.
2: Uh, Hey, Vitaly. Looking forward to to reading the book. Um, I had a quick question. I have I have several, probably about five or six buddies that are all from Russia, uh, predominantly Jewish too, Um, and and they've all obtained obtained really, you know, uh, a ton of success here, Um, and they're all successful, own their own companies, um, and all different industries. So it's not specific to that. Just wondering, you know, is there something about about, You know, giving that you were, you were raised there, and and sometimes we've never really come up with anything. But is there something about the education system in in Russia that really prepares people to succeed in in the U.S.? I mean, do you do? Does that make any sense to you? Or yeah, I would, yeah, I would yeah. just love your perspective on that.
1: I actually kind of it's kind of interesting. Um, Russia prides itself. Well, right no, okay. So I'm gonna I gotta talk in the past tense. Like you know, the Russia thirty years ago, I knew. You know, at, this, at the time, it, you know, it was very proud of its education system, and if you went to school, the way they taught you math, and effective than in American system, and uh, there was a, like uh, these teachers were worse, so, less soft, and they were a lot more, like you know, doing, you know like the way George you know conducts this room, and kind of more benevolent dictators kind of, thing, you know, kind of, you know, kind of. So that's, that was the kind of the Russian education system. And so that's a good thing. That's a good part of it. The bad part of it is that I would argue that American education system on some level was better, you know, so that's, that's, the, so it has its advantages because um, that system that I was exposed to, they wanted everybody to think the same way. They didn't want anybody to stand out, and uh, therefore, if you had any kind of creativity or if you were different, you were, you kind of you you had a miserable existence. So, like I was like when I grew up in Russia, I was miserable, like because I was different. So that's you know that's my you know again, and this is very local. My this is my experience, and I, and I know I have, I have some friends who didn't have that experience. Um, so but I think Americans. Uh, encourages individuality, and this is why, when you you come from Russia, and you get exposed to this individual, you know, kind of this American freedom, you you know, you blossom because been, you been know, It's almost like the that oxygen has been deprived from you, and so maybe kind of if you take a Russian and put it like kind of if you take the Soviet Russian and put them in America, and that now you allow the person to be who that you know kind of. Uh, allow the, the individuality to come out. Maybe that's why those Russians, you know, do so much better here. That
0: makes sense. Thank you. Thanks. Oh, my pleasure. Perfect. Great question. Let's go to uh, Marcus and then Gnostic. Marcus
3: Aurelius, the floor is yours. Unmute yourself, please. Appreciate it. Thank you, George. Uh, Vitali. pleasure uh, to, to get the chance to ask you this question. I've myself been on this journey for the last three years. And it definitely uh, gives you a different perspective in life and and, and just things. So, um, very sure the sentiment. Uh, my question was, was going to be around deglobalization. I mm-hmm. share the same thought as you. Um, I hate to sound grim, but from my perspective, uh, the current moves that have happened between Russia, uh, Saudi Arabia, China, and you know the the the, the, the breaks are becoming more apparent now than it's ever been. Um, I think that I don't think we'll ever see two percent ever again. Uh, and you know for the for the fact that de-globalization, uh is uh, is uh, deflationary, right? So my pers- my my question to you is, what time frame, right? Do you do you kind of see this unfolding where we kind of see a standoff from the West? and the east and if if that does happen do you think it'll ever get to an extreme or is it going to be a passive-aggressive relationship do you think it's going to be at the height of 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 um you know the cold war or is it going to be a mild you know relationship
1: Yeah, no, so i gotta clarify something um we have a we're gonna have a selective deglobalization. in other words like, let's say we're gonna have a factory coming from China. It's gonna. It's like it, it may. When I go to the
3: United States,
1: It may go to, India, to Mexico.
3: I, so I agree say, with you, and that's why I was yeah. referring to. Apologies, and, and that's what I'm exactly yeah. referring to because I think Christine Lagarde also made so made a comment towards this, but it's very inconspicuous. So that's what I was alluding to. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. No. so I like listen. It takes, it takes time. Like it takes time you know, to move factories, to move ecosystems, right? Because, you know, like, when you think about, like, when Intel is building a factory in Arizona, right, or in in other companies there, they basically have to rebuild this whole infrastructure. Like, it's a, a, so it takes a lot of, it takes a, it's going to be a while. I mean, this is not going to be months. This is going to be, like more than more than five years maybe 10 years or more i mean so it's a, it's gonna be you know it's gonna take a while uh, but we are moving that you know but uh but the direct you know, the direction to me now is unstoppable to, the way i look at it it's now irreversible and uh, obviously the chip that's made by intel in arizona is going to cost more than uh by taiwan semiconductor in you know in so uh you know so that's yeah, you know, so that's now you have higher prices. Uh, so I I think the world is going to be this globalization. Basically, we we shared same common interest, right? And as we kind of all kind of retreat, or the world kind of breaks into maybe different spheres. Like you have this maybe China Russian sphere, and uh, as if you to it, and then you have this kind of Western sphere of the United States, et cetera, then, you know, it's kind of the world is going to become like, I think that's what most likely is going to look like, you know, uh, you know, like kind of, I was thinking about just off subject a little bit, but think about uh, Russia used to be the, one of the largest exporters of weapons of, uh, of uh, military weapons. Uh, and India was one of the, probably one of its largest markets. Because all Indian weapons are coming off Russians, and today India is, has to make a decision, decision because uh, Russia right now is not exporting any weapons. Number one, number two, because of sanctions, it's um, military uh, factory. I mean, factories that made weapons are basically uh, standing still because you know the to make they can't buy the. Uh, uh, they can't buy the steel from Germany for the tanks, etc., uh, and requires microprocessors to make planes, and they don't have them. So it's like you no. Know, so now, like India, most likely going to have to some point going to be buying uh, Western planes and Western. It's most likely going to go through transition to Western uh, uh, military equipment. Uh, and and uh, in the past, we didn't think about these kind of things. And now we're going to have to start thinking about it. Who am I buying my tanks for? I mean, it just, anyway, just something I've been contemplating
0: lately. Appreciate it. Thanks for that, Marcus. Thank you, Marcus. Uh, no worries. All right. So now we're going to go to uh, Andrew's got his hand up. Andrew, um, welcome. Please unmute yourself. Oh, hey, Vitaly. Uh, great,
1: great here. Um, I just wanted your take on, um, if you had a take um, on Mark
0: Cuban's
1: um, new um, online drug cost company and, and how it might, uh, you know, disrupt or, or affect uh, pharmacies, benefit managers and, and generic
3: drug companies.
1: Um, I'll be honest, I'm not sure how disruptive that is. Let me explain why, because I think drug prices for, I mean, the generic drug prices, were already incredibly low, so I've seen this. I've seen this, but then I, I start thinking about the drug, part, you know, the generic generic drug, part, uh, you get at the uh, I'm, I'm not sure how much lower they are. Okay, so let me let me first of all let me plead ignorance a little bit, because I'm not sure how much lower they are, um, to begin with. That's point number one. Point number two, um. Like most of the our medical spending is not paid by us, but paid by third party. So unless you are paying, unless you are paying out of pocket for the uh, for, uh, for those drugs, you can have very little incentive to actually use Mark uh, Cuban's. And, you know, and you know, and so, uh, so I'm not sure. Like I'm not sure it's how much impact it's going to have on a healthcare because because. When you when you when, when you have a health insurance and you go to Walmart, and you just pay your copay, then you don't even care how much it costs. So just you know, uh, there is not. But you know, I'm not sure how revolutionary that is. You know, because if you anyway, that's that's kind of my
0: five cents on this. Yeah, Vitaly, I remember, and and I don't want to put you on. This. We'll try to stay away yeah. yeah. individual names. Yeah. The this thing, because you were very public about it, and I think it was a great pick of yours actually last year. I remember you mentioned McKesson. I think. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah we still own. Okay. Yeah, it's... yeah, you 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 still own the stock. Yeah. Right, yeah, it's, so... our largest,
1: like, it's our largest. It's our largest. position today.
0: And well, what do you te- What tends? Can you at all? Uh, hey. what, what, what type of turnover do you have? Like, you tend to have reasonably long holding periods?
1: Well, that one we own it for. Like this is a this is a great case study because we, George we own it probably for six years, yeah. Uh, and I there was case the, because I write like I write about some of my stocks that I you know that I own, and this one I happened to write a lot. I wrote you know I wrote a lot of last six years, and I tell you this, this is kind of tells you a lot about uh, patience. I think we bought this stock about one hundred thirty to one hundred fifty dollars, and George for. Four and a half years It only the only thing it did it gave me a headache and then it gave me all the returns in a year and a half so that's just that tells you about the patience.
0: life is not linear we know that's one of the tough things yeah. about this business which actually leads me to another chapter you had in the book you were mm-hmm. talking about a really really hard time one of the worst periods you ever had professionally and the no. pain that you were suffering I believe it was around 2015, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Could you speak a little bit about that, and for everyone in the room, because we've all been there before? I always like to say sometimes the market makes you look smarter than you really are, and sometimes it makes you look dumber than you really are. The truth mm-hmm. inevitably always lies somewhere in the middle. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe you could talk about your 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 bad streaks and what was happening for you. Yeah. Well, so
1: 2015 started out like a normal year, then like like. Uh, almost every other month, one of my stocks would get, you know, would get shot, like, you know, decline 20 to 30%. And uh, and then uh, in October, November that year, I remember it just, uh, like, like we had a lot of stocks decline. Some of them, some some of the declines, you know, like were, were I could see they were temporary. Uh, and, then, um, and then I remember, like, in October, October 2015, I'm in Israel. I'm on the trip with my friends, and the strip was scheduled, you know, a year before. And and my portfolio just just like they like the stock that I own is down 80% in one day. And as I look at this company, I realize actually in this case, this company may not survive. Which rarely happens, where a company declines 80% in one day. And then I can I realize that I, I you know I was completely wrong on this one. And I tell you this, I, like I remember so vividly, I was like for the first time in my life truly depressed. And I, you know, and I, I never ever, you know, kind of thought about suicide, but I could understand the pain people go through that you know commit suicide because because that pain that you the know, depression could be this you know this pain is it was just unbearable. Um, and uh, and so in the irony of this, I am at this there was a group of us and we are at this party and everybody's dancing. there is was music play, uh, playing and I am like dying inside and, and, and I'm looking at these people and they're smiling at me, and I'm just thinking, how could they be smiling? Don't they understand how bad I feel? And it felt incredibly, incredibly lonely. So, and that's, and that's a, and I'm sure that's a lot of people, you know, they, today this market, you know, is painful for a lot of investors, and I, I'm sure that's exactly how they feel. Um, and and here's the irony of this: I think in 2015, we were down like the 10 or 15 percent. I mean, now that I look at this, I was uh, George. We were talking in the beginning about being you know, being sophist to yourself. I I was I was a sophist. I basically I took the small policy. That's number one. I just you know I completely self talked myself. Into um, into to, uh, into feeling miserable. That's number one. Number two, um, Stoics would tell you that you want to when you have a, when you're facing a problem, you want to break it up into small problems. Like and what I did, if I actually looked stock by stock at my portfolio, I realized that most of my stocks were worth a lot more than where they were trading at. Uh, one stock wasn't, but again, it's a one stock out of five stocks, right? So it's you know that's why I have a portfolio, and so in this situation, it actually helps if you talk like imagine if it wasn't if it wasn't you who was going through this problem, but it was a friend of yours, and so instead of talking to yourself, you would try to you know talk to your friend and explain what he should be doing. So it's very you know. And uh, that actually doing that actually helps you a lot. And um, and another thing, and this is very very important: um, if you are an investor, you should have an expectation that at some point in you know in your investing career, you're going to have a time when your portfolio will decline a lot. And if you don't have that expectation, you should not be investing. Another thing is that pain. is actually, like, 2015 was probably one of the most important years of my career because um, we changed our investment process after that. Um, and the pain I went through made me realize that quality for me when I analyze companies should be uncomfortable. So, like, as value investor, what happens to you a lot of times, you know, the market is expensive, and you start looking for value. And a lot of times you find this company – that looks very cheap, but it has problems. It maybe has horrible balance sheet, maybe has bad management or combination of all these different things. And you're like, wow, well, but it's very cheap. And what I found is that whenever I compromise in quality, I always ended up paying for it. So the, after 2015, we made a significant adjustment to our price, started to quantify quality internally. And the quality became uncompromising for me. So when I when I look at company today, and I it doesn't part, pass my quality test, I just stop. I don't I don't. It's the company is dead to to me. So those kind of those lessons were you know I learned them, you know thankfully you know by going through twenty fifteen, and therefore twenty fifteen ended up saving me a lot of money, you know in 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 the following years. So if If you are, you know, if you are going through a tough time today, just learn an experience and try, by the way, by the way, I, and this is not me trying to sell the book, but this chapter in the book about, it's called Pain Opera, uh, uh, um, uh, Pain Opera and uh, whatever, Pain Investing, the chapter in the book where I talk about my 2015 experience, if you're going through this tough time right now, just by the book, it's you know you can get into it for or something. <laughs> no, no, I'm just, no, I'm just... It's
0: it's you make me smile for a second because when you're talking about you know having depressed your portfolio. It's sort of like and I don't mean insulted it, but it's tempted but it's a tempted a bad joke. But it's when you're driving down the highway you see those signs, you know, depressed, please call one eight hundred. You know, some, yeah. relig- some religious group. You know, but, yeah. you know, but you know, that battered investment, that uh, uh, yeah. battered value investors standing by to counsel you on your losses or something. So, well, so George,
1: that's fine. you say it, but so what happens, so let me just tell you, this is important. I wrote the chapter in 2016 and I never published it because I just could not bring myself to publish it. But I, over the time I had friends that would go and I would always send the chapter and, uh, and I, Every single one of them told me how much it helped them, so I like I included it into this into this book. This is the chapter for like like I you know this is my kind of my contribution. Yeah, this is how I was trying to help other people. So this is anyway. So that's that that chapter. If you're if you're going through tough times right now, the chapter will help you a lot. And I added um, the the most important part. I kind of went through like uh, how would Stoics deal with this issue, like. How, and look, like, you
0: know, and, uh, and anyway, so that's, I'm going to stop right there. No, that, what you say is, it echoes what we were talking about earlier. You learn so much more in failure yeah. than you do in, than you do in triumph. We've all failed. And failure is a feature, not a bug. It comes with the territory. And I think one of the most important qualities is resilience. Um, you can't feel sorry for yourself. You can't let your ego get in the way. You can't climb into an echo chamber with like-minded people to reassure you, telling you how smart you are, you know, you're right, the market's wrong, you're smart, I'm smart, we're all, all smart together, um, which brings me to another question, Vitaly. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, I, I, I know you, not terribly well, but I know, I know you enough um, and One of the, to, to say that one of the characteristics, someone said to me, you know, we'll describe Vitaly, i say he's a humble guy, he's not an arrogant guy, he possesses humility. And so you know, we're, we're in a business where by definition, we're making decisions in the face of incomplete information. And if you're any good in this business, you're still going to be wrong, you know, 40% of the time. And so, how do you, do, I mean, I, I imagine, I, I don't believe you look at technical analysis. I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. But when a stock is adding, ba- acting badly, um, are you more sort of just, you know, you more just focusing on the story, the story is still intact? Like, what do you do when, say, you know, the stock's acting really well. I think the worst thing for me is when I have a stock that's acting poorly and I can't tell you why. Like, if I can tell you why, if I can tell you what the bull case, the bear case is, I can mm-hmm. at least address the bear case. But the worst thing is you feel like you're shadow boxing. Something's wrong. You don't know what it is, but obviously not everybody shares your enthusiasm for the idea. And so when a stock's acting badly and you cannot articulate the bear case, it's acting poorly maybe it's a macro variable but just you know the price action is just is not what you thought mm-hmm. it was going to be given the news what do you do in a situation like that do you do you reduce positions to, to reduce your risk or do you just do you just do you just stay focused on the fundamentals and you, you figure that the the share price will sort itself out eventually what, what do you do i think the
1: when as an investor i want to be thoughtfully arrogant and you because every about it, every time you buy a stock or a stock, you're basically saying I'm right and the market is wrong, right? So that's where the arrogance comes in. Correct. But there, there are different type of arrogance. There is an arrogance that comes from comes from saying I am a great per I'm a great person. I have a successful track record. Therefore, anything I do will turn to gold. That is a very dangerous arrogance, right? And then there is a thoughtful arrogance where I earned that right to be have an arrogant opinion about this company because I have done a lot of research and my research is this. And so which is happens to be different opinion from the market. So um, I'll be lying if I told you that when I see, see a company, I won't decline for no reason, if it doesn't make me uncomfortable. But if there is nothing like if I if there is nothing else, like you know, if if I don't have an explanation for this, uh, and you know, and I feel you know the margin of safety is still there, etc. If nothing else changes, just the stock price declined, I'll do absolutely nothing. I mean, sure. I, uh, but again, for every single company, you know, we've done so much work on this that that you probably it rarely happens. Like it's what happens sometimes is that the stock price declines so much more than we would expect, you know, then, you know, than, than we think it's rational. And we go back to our models and, and kind of test our assumptions and stuff. Uh, but uh, usually the price decline alone would not let me, you know, without anything else. I would, yeah. not, I would not do
0: this. Let me ask you about a controversial stock, which uh, everybody knows in this room. I would never ask you about this stock, except, except you annoyed the hell out of me a few years Uh ago. You wrote some positive comments, if not about the stock, certainly the product. And we're talking about, we're talking about the electric car company, that shall not be named the stock, Uh which, you know, you and I sat through enough Jim Chano's Bears and Hibernation conferences. Okay. So I know it doesn't fit with your value for your institutional clients. So I'm just sort of curious. and as one says, you know, you know, there's a big difference between your your beliefs and your beliefs. reading your um, analysis of Tesla, at least the product. Yeah. If I, yeah. I don't recall if you own the car or not. But can yeah. you just share a little bit about what was the variant perception that you had on you had on Tesla? I'm not going to ask if you own the stock or not. That's yeah.
1: not really no, I can tell you that you don't. We-
0: Yeah. okay okay, okay. so 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 what was your insight on tesla what a for value guy to say oh tesla might be interesting like that's pretty interesting like why what was in your head what what was that what was the thesis
1: i think the couple things um number one and probably one of the most important ones the oh okay number one when you analyze tesla you have to realize it's a very you have to be nuanced in other words, like you know, like 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 let me give you an example of nuance. Great company, not a great stock. That's a nuance. Okay, so you have to be nuanced. Elon Musk, brilliant and unethical. Brilliant and like so. It's a you, you can have a person that has great qualities and bad qualities at the same time. So like as an example, I'm just so. There was a when you analyze Tesla, you you can. Have always contradicting, uh, kind of conflicting uh, uh, data points. But anyways, so when I, when I, what gave me a uh, c- couple insights. Number one, I thought that the electric car, even though it looked a lot like uh, kind of internal combustion engine car, ICE car, it was a very different animal. And my analogy would be just like uh, a Nokia dumb phone made phone calls and so did uh, iPhone made phone calls. They were completely different products, even though they were both called phones. And and my insight was that you need a completely different skill set to make electric car, which is a you know, which is battery, battery motor, and a lot of software, than ICE car, which is you know, which is a uh, has a very different complexity and it's a much more complex engine. A lot less software, etc. So that was a one insight. So my point, my, my insight was that what people consider to be an advantage that General Motors made I don't know, ten million cars, I called it a disadvantage because it's going to be. It was very difficult for Nokia to transition to making smartphones, uh, and I would argue. And I and, and that's that was the point number one. Point number two, I was blown away by the product. And I never seen, I never experienced a product like that. And, it, George, I am, I'm not a car guy at all. I don't, I'm indifferent to cars. Like, you know, it's a, it doesn't matter what I drive. But that was, a, the, the product was phenomenal. One, one thing I realized is that Tesla basically when they sell a car, they create a new evangelist for their product. And, uh, and so... Um, the they will sell as many cars as they make. That was kind of my you know, you know. so there was a, you know it's a more complex answer, but this is, those are kind of the points that come to mind right away. and uh, so that's you know and so those were kind of the, you know the highlights.
0: So those, so those were the observations though about the about the company and the product. you weren't so the, the two at the time, well, how did that how did that translate into your view on the stock?
1: Yeah, no. So at the time, I thought it was a it was a path independent company, and I was right, meaning right. that in a sense, there was a lot of debt. There was a lot of debt. There was no cash flows, and its fate is basically tied to things it can control. So if uh, economy went into tailspin, if the interest went up, whatever, the company would you know may have. To, if you were a shareholder. They might have diluted the hell out of you. So I didn't think as a loan. But as a short, I didn't think it was a good short because I also realized if things play out well, then then we get to escape velocity where they'll be able to, you know, kind of uh, you know, to finance themselves. And then once they get to scale, you know, who knows you know, there's a was a they can they can take market share from others and you know, and make millions of cars. Got it. Uh, Got it. so it's a this is why, you know, like like it's kinda kind, of, kind of funny. When I wrote so I wrote it uh like it's a uh you can buy it on Amazon. It's a I don't know it's a fifty page uh research piece on this. So you can go to my website and download it there. Um and um both bulls and bears
0: hated me. <laughs> because Well you know, because... you know, you know, you know Vitaly. I always love you. I never hated you. I hate you wrote that. No, poem. no, no. No, 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 no I but, 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 but let me make an important point here. Like, I wouldn't, I mean, an ARC research report on Tesla is not worth the paper it's written on. But, however, when I see a smart guy like you who I respect mm. put in, you know, a positive word, um his product and the company, maybe not the stock, that really made me sit up and take notice. Because um, you're not a Kool-Aid drinker. Far from it. You tend to be more on the skeptical end of things. So, To me, there was tremendous information content, and the fact that you were, you know, you had something positive to say. So uh, you were right, and you were right, and I was wrong. So there, so so take that, Vitaly. All right, let's go. Let's go to LC. LC, um, you had a question. Please unmute yourself, LC. Yeah,
2: a couple of quick ones. One, um, if you're managing money for individuals, balance the dynamic between what you think you know is right which is but contrast that with kind of the managing the relationship with the individual client who might have uh insights that are inconsistent with what uh you think is the right thing to do with the portfolio and 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 to that to that end do do you manage the same approach or the same uh exact portfolio for everyone or do you kind of uh Customize that around each client's views. That is a great question. For
1: that, um, so we the way it's kind of I like I made is a little bit different. Is that our marketing? Our marketing is very is a uh, is not traditional marketing. Is that when when somebody reaches out to us uh, and they want to talk to me or to like somebody in my firm? we have them read a 40-page brochure. And only after that, and then, by the way, m- most of the time, people who become my clients, our clients, people who read my articles for years. So usually, so there's a, people that come to us, they come to us for what we do. If somebody, you know, so the, um, and uh, so there is a like, much greater alignment um, uh, up front and by the way, when I talk to somebody on the phone, uh, to prospects on the phone, it's the, it's the interview that's going both ways because I'm looking to, it's the person is not interviewing. It's not just that person interviewing me. I'm also interviewing that person to see the person is the right fit. You know, there's right philosophical fit. That's to answer your question number one. Question number two, number two um, we have two portfolios. We have a kind of a core value portfolio and we have a dividend portfolio. And uh, we created a dividend portfolio because I I saw how many people were buying this bond, this substitute stocks like Kochs and Kimberly-Clarks, and I realized these people will blow up when interest rates go up. And so we created a portfolio where the margin of safety is not as high per se as a lot of stocks we own, like an a value portfolio. It, you know, but, but I don't have to worry about the that portfolio declining substantially uh, like when interest rates go up, just you know because you know, you're buying undervalued companies that also pay dividends. Um, uh, but anyway, so that's number one. So we have two portfolios. And then when clients come to us, we allow them, uh, customization happens two ways. Number one, each portfolio will look differently because stocks we bought six months ago may not be the same stocks we're buying today. So that's number one, customization. And number two, which is very important, is that uh, clients have some some of our clients have social beliefs. Some of our clients don't want to own tobacco stocks. Some don't want to own pipelines, which we own. uh, And whatever. So when they become a client, they tell us which industry groups to avoid. So And this is how we practice, practice socially responsible investing. We basically let clients decide what their social beliefs are and we just Exclude those stocks from their portfolios when you buy them, If you buy them,
0: so that's a really good question. Great answer, Vitaly. Quick Tally, that, that 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 prompts me. My like, is in the audience. He may want to weigh in on this. But when you you're, you're a bottom stock picker, I get it. But when you assemble mm. your portfolio and you look and you see um, what it looks like and you might stop and consider, well, you know, do I have a bias towards economic defensive or cyclicals, mm-hmm. high beta, low beta, a good balance sheet, bad balance sheet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And especially given, you know, everyone is so factor conscious in their portfolios now, not that you will slavishly follow um, the factor optimization, but always cause that you're implicitly making in your portfolio.
1: I, George, I'm not even sure what the factors are. <laughs> so i
0: okay I, there you go that's an answer that's an answer yeah,
1: that's an answer i'll tell you this it's kind of a funny story I, I have a client who wanted me to have a dividend portfolio i'm like great so and then he comes back to me maybe six months later and say Vitaly, the yield of the portfolio is much less than you told me what the portfolio would would be would have uh and i looked at it and he was right the yield of his portfolio was a few points and I'm, you know him them up front and then i realized this person says he doesn't want to own tobacco stocks he doesn't want to own energy stocks he doesn't want to own MLps so they like like those companies you know each one of these groups at the time was yielding seven percent or more so my point is when come when clients impose their social beliefs on them then i tell them that they they will be the ones who will pay the price for that
0: Right, no, it's one hundred percent, one hundred percent. Hey, slightly different. Stuff. Um, so, Colorado, Colorado, is in no a longer uh, real estate market's top portal, yeah. I think, in the country. last year or two. Could you mm-hmm. just share with us a little anecdotal uh, observations of what's going on in your part of the country, with respect to real estate markets?
1: Oh, I, yeah, I can, yeah, I can. So, my brother is a realtor. So, and you met my brother Alex. Um, so, um, it's it's a uh, I think until. And this is kind of a complete anecdote from my brother. Until April, my brother was complaining to me all the time, said, Vitaly, I have a client who wants to buy a house. We make an offer. Then offers come in and we don't buy the house. And the house gets sold for 20% more, like you know, above asking price or 15% more above asking price. And this was happening all the time. Then um, my wife was, was wanting to look at new house. And, uh she called me up and says do you want to look at the house n- n- uh, nearby I said, sure we go there and this house that's selling for 1.2 million dollars and George when we drove up to the house it seems like it's a black Friday at Walmart in other words' it's like there was this park we go into the hu- <laughs> we go we go we go into the house and it's it's like there was no place to breathe and and I'm like I just walked in and I, and I left like because I'm not gonna like I like I've seen this movie before, right? This house sold it like in in like uh I I would argue when we were there for the open house I would argue that probably the house already sold the realtor probably used it to get new clients, but anyway it sold for three hundred thousand dollars more. For, it's a one point two million dollar house sold for one point five just in a matter of days. Now that is that is like April. Okay. Now. The opposite is happening. Now my brother says, he, my brother loves to complain. So now he's complaining. He says, I have people who, I have people who, uh, who want to sell houses and they just don't sell. It's a, you know, so the, the inventory is rising and the prices start to drop. And you know how this, you know, how real estate market works. You have two extremes. On one side, you have people who need to sell the house, like they must, because they're moving to another state or something. Have people who would like to sell a house. Well, this line. people who would like to sell, to sell the house, they don't want to sell because they, you know, they remember their house used to be worth eight hundred thousand dollars. Now it's seven hundred. You know, they, you know, they feel like they get, you know, they feel like they're getting they get a bad deal. They don't want to sell. And the uh, and the people who must sell the house, they do sell, but they get much lower price. Uh, so this is kind of the, this is the state of the real estate market in Denver. Though I'll be honest, that's probably very similar to most markets today.
0: Yeah, you know, that, that, that that's interesting. Let's another Colorado student question for you. So I always yeah. wondered about. So Colorado was known the being one of the first states to legalize uh, marijuana. Yeah. And I know there were you know was a lot of excitement about you know tax revenues and this and that and everything else. Yeah. So a few questions. Uh, whatever is noteworthy, I'm probably not gonna ask the right question, but I'm gonna try. So A, has it generated the tax revenues that you know people were hoping for? And then B, what has it done with respect to other um, crime or car crashes, people driving under the influence of marijuana, et cetera, et cetera? Anything, anything noteworthy about how life in Colorado since um, the legalization of marijuana occurred?
1: So I can't answer the first question. I just don't know. Like, I just really don't know the answer to that. But I know that it's the, the, the revenues must have been up a lot because they talked the hell out of it. Um uh, the I did not notice, like I'll be honest, I did not notice any difference. And let me tell you how oblivious I am to this. I was driving by this place which called a Green Something. I forget it was a Green Something, Green Concept or something. And for a long time I thought it was like a salad bar. Like the like some kind of fast food restaurant. Like realized that it was a dispenser. Like that's, that's 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 how oblivious I am to this. And so it's almost like nothing happened. Like I don't know the difference. I, uh, I that is classic
0: mentality. You <laughs> thought it was a salad bar. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go on. <laughs>
3: you go, sorry, sorry. No,
1: that's that's. But I so I I don't really have a good like my my point is I didn't really notice the difference. I I haven't looked. I mean, I probably should look. I have I haven't looked at the statistics. Some you know. All right.
0: All, right. Yeah, All right. So yeah. but suffice to say, you have no marijuana, uh, no marijuana no. exposure in, in your portfolio. But you do. I can own,
1: barely, I can but, barely but, function but, but, without it. But but you you have own tobacco stocks, haven't you? Yeah. No. That's yeah. Uh, I own I own tobacco stocks. Yeah. Um, right. Got uh, it. And and by the way, part of the business for a second. Um, if you are look at if you look at growers in general, like if I ask you to name me uh, a rich broccoli grow uh, a broccoli farmer you probably won't be able to name it's you know it's a commodity because it's a commodity it's a race to the bottom and in in all honesty raising pot is the same thing just the same way by the way raising pot is not much different than raising tobacco
0: I agree with that so so that's yeah okay so switching out of stocks on a more important subject so Mm -hmm. like I still have to lose a few pounds and I'm sure there are other folks in the room who do. And I remember from one year to the next, you like, you you had a stock split. I don't know if it was a three for two or five for four, but um, I know you got religion about your diet. And I should talk about a book. And you also also talk about um, having walking meetings or or, or trying to go for walks, meeting people. So these simple little life, and also you don't eat desserts at all. So can you talk a little bit about like, how did you get on the straight and narrow like, not eating desserts no more sugar and also how much do you walk every day
1: so okay so let's start with walking i walk about 40 minutes to an hour a day depends you know uh sometimes more but i walk every single day and i either when i walk I either listen to books or talk on the phone but to me uh like right now it's a summer so the sun comes out like it's, it's it gets hotter sooner so I walk from seven to eight, or, you know. You know, in the winter time, I maybe walk from nine to ten or something, you know. Uh, so because it's not as hot. Um, so what happened was that when when I got to my forties, I realized that the the previous forty years were much easier, and that it's you know if I keep doing what I'm doing, I'm gonna, I'm probably gonna have heart issues. Going to be much better. So I realized I have to make some adjustments, and um, I started to work out. And um, the workout part was kind of difficult because I tried to work out before and I could never stick to working out. And I realized that I have a uh, I have a willpower to quit things, but I don't have willpower to acquire new habits. So I did this working out was kind of interesting. I the trainer and for the last four years um, I have a trainer, I work out with the trainer Monday at 8 a.m. At 8 and appointment on the calendar and nothing, you know, it's a uh, and nothing, com- you know, I never cancel it unless it's a dire, dire emergency. So that's how I got to work out. About desserts, first, when you go to a restaurant and uh, you're done with your main course and they bring you dessert menu, And if every single time you have to make a decision, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to eat the dessert or not, that consumes energy. And during the day, you have a lot less energy. You have a lot less willpower. And so you're most likely going to say, yes. Now imagine George, if I, if I, um, like, um, Yeah, I I don't know what how you know if you eat pork or not. But let's say you're a religious Jew, and you don't eat pork. If I offer you pork, you're gonna say I don't eat pork, right? And it's gonna consume very little energy from you to say no, right? Because it is part of your identity that you don't eat pork. If I offer you a cigarette and you you don't smoke, you say I don't smoke. And again, me offering offering a cigarette will do absolutely nothing for you because you're a person who doesn't smoke. So if you if you tell yourself, I'm the person who does not eat desserts, and it's actually becomes a lot easier not to eat desserts because every single time, it's what I call it it's a half binary decision. It's in other words, instead of saying yes or no, you just, it's, it's always no. So you consume very little willpower. And uh, like I basically, when I'm in Denver, I don't eat desserts and it's, a, drives my mom, like, I also don't eat, like, when I'm in Denver, I don't eat meat. Like, when I say meat, I don't eat steak. Uh, I eat chicken, fish, et cetera. And it drives my mother-in-law crazy because we'll go to her house and they would make shish kebab or whatever. And she would offer it to me. I said, sorry, I don't eat steak. And she's like, well, just one time. And I, I said, you understand, there is no such thing as one time. Like, if I eat it once, I'm going to start eating it all the time. And, uh, you know, and uh, that's, that was basically, that's how I started eating sugar. Uh, so I don't, you know, I, you know, I a diet a little bit, and I write about this in the book. Whenever I travel outside of Denver, and either I get to the airport, or I travel 50, 100 miles outside of Denver, I have no diet. So when I travel, like, I just came back from Europe, and in Europe, I had ice cream every single day, I had steak, etc. And George, I got to tell you, I enjoyed that ice cream so much more. I enjoyed that steak I had there so much more. And um, and that's and that's a and uh, so I feel like I call it eight percent. Kind of realized that I travel about eight percent of the time. So that's <laughs> that's uh, that, that's also part of my diet.
0: So, so 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 basically, by just having a blanket rule, you're not going to have sugar. You're not going to have dessert. You're not going to have steak. It, it just, it doesn't, it's hardwired into you. You don't have to waste any energy thinking about it. So, so tell, let me ask you this between the dietary restrictions and mm-hmm. walking 40 minutes or an hour every day. I mean, you've, you've lost a fair bit of weight over the last two, three years.
1: Uh, well, I, I, I lost, I lost weight. I also been working out, so I gained weight as well. So okay. basically, no, basically I look fitter. And but I basically it's roughly about the same amount of weight. Plus, it fluctuates five, you know, five pounds or more. So right. probably have a little bit more weight because weight because I just came back from Europe. Uh, but uh, and you know, and, and another thing I do uh, every morning, I take cold showers. Uh, that's, you take you, know, wait, that's,
0: you take you take cold showers. What's with that? Yes. Yeah. Well, so there is a there's. A oh yeah! Oh yeah, yeah! Yeah. The way, There's a part in the book. You're crazy. Your kids jumped in San Francisco Bay when it was like a Degrees or something like, that. like <laughs> what? What's
1: that? Oh, yeah, what's with your kids, uh, man? Uh, well, I know, so the so the so the, uh, so the book, so my book. So I'm gonna self-promotion a little bit. My book was endorsed by Wim Wim Hof, and as and uh, some of your listeners will know, and uh, uh, Wim Hof is this crazy uh, uh, Dutch guy who set 25 world records. Uh, he goes by the name Iceman, uh but doing insane stuff in the cold weather. George, he would he climbed Kilimanjaro barefoot. What? Yeah no absolutely look it up. Uh he uh swam under ice for sixty five meters or some 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 insane stuff. He walked in the like there's a like if you read up on him it's just cra- it's crazy. Um but he you know and he he's a huge advocate of basically doing stuff in the cold. And um, and it's one thing I noticed, and you know, and there's a, you know, I'm, not, I'm not an expert on this, and um, that's part of it. But the uh basically it shocks your body, it's releases toxins, and it's actually good for you. So there's health benefits. Um, I'm doing it for a different reason. I'm doing it uh, because when I wake up in the morning. And I, and I turn on the cold shower, and I and the, the, I look at this cold water, and I so don't want to go into it. And then I tell myself, "Well, what's going to happen to me? I'm just going to. I'm still going to be. You know, I'm not going to die. It's not like I'm a, like if I if I was jumping off the plane with a parachute. Like yes, I can see the risk, and there's a very tiny tiny risk that I will die. But there's nothing's going to happen to me if I get in the cold water. So, you know, so I kind of I use my willpower to get into this cold water and the first 30 seconds i'm uncomfortable and then i feel absolutely fine and i kind of train myself doing things that i kind of don't like this is kind of that's what it's for and also in the morning it wakes me you know it's a it wakes me up and i feel like i I love doing it especially after workout uh so that's you know that's part of my health all right right. i got
0: one more question for you um Again, if anyone wants to ask Vitaly about anything from uh, stocks to fifty water to 20 20 minutes sunlight uh, on, on 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 days growing up in Murmansk, have that Here's your chance raise your, raise your hand So Vitaly, last question for me anyway uh classical music why yeah. do you write about composers so much and maybe share with us I don't know. The story, or about who is your favorite or most interesting composer?
1: Um, so Freddie Mercury has this song that's called the, "There Must Be More to Life Than This." This is my realization. Uh, when I used to write only about investing, and I started write about life and classical music, it gave me more meaning in life. And I like you know, in a classical music uh, composers were creators, and they had a very interesting life, and they, you listen to their music today, and like, you listen to Tchaikovsky music, and you think how great it was, it is, and what you don't realize how much pain he went through to compose that music, okay, so you know, and uh, the story I'm going to tell you is actually, about not about Tchaikovsky, but a Ber- Berlioz, who was, I forget, he was, he was French, I think he was French, yeah, yeah, he was in French, yes, uh, he, uh, he is a, a French composer, Jewish-French composer. And the reason I remember is French, because uh, a few years ago I've been to, uh, uh, to his uh, birthplace, uh, Grenoble in France. Anyway, so, uh, so this guy wants to study music. His parents, uh, just like any Jewish parents, wanted to become a doctor. So they are against him studying music. So later, he basically when he was 13 to 15, which is for that you know for that uh, for classical music that's late, he's basically overrules his parents and starts studying music. And um, when he, in his 20s, he goes to the uh, Shakespeare play, and falls in love with this you know the, the Shakespearean actress and uh, i'm going blank of her name her uh, last name is smith
0: yeah, i'm looking up her name is harriet smithson harriet yeah, smith yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Harriet
1: Smithson. yeah and he falls in love with her and she completely ignores him so he rents an apartment he rents an apartment uh, across the street from her and basically consumes a lot of opium and writes a symphony dedicated to her he wants to, you know, he wants to become famous and to win her heart. And he succeeds. He writes a symphony called Fantastique. And uh, she, she does not hear it at the premiere. But, if you know, a year later, she finds out that, you know, this guy wrote a symphony for her. She hears that they, they get married. Uh, her uh, career as a performer is declining. She starts drinking. So the marriage falls apart. So and uh, so, but the the fact is, he actually wrote a symphony for her, just because of her. And what's interesting about this is that Berlioz did not receive classical training, and his Symphony Fantastique broke all the rules of uh, symphonies composed at the time. It was a uh, what's called a program program symphony or program music. Like uh, when you think about opera, opera is a program music because there is a there was a story, and then there was a music written about it, around it. So Berlioz's uh, Symphony Fantastique did not follow traditional rules, and it was a program music. So there was this—he has this crazy story, which I can't even, don't even remember very well. That you know, that you know, he he wrote, and then wrote music around it. And my point is, a lot of times, if you know the rules, it's difficult to break them. But if you don't know the rules, it's so much easier breaking them because you don't know them. And I think it's exactly what he did. So this is kind of the –
0: this is why I like this story. That's awesome. That's a great story. That's terrific. All right. So, Vitaly, this has been wonderful. Um, So, again, Soul in the Game, uh, delightful read. It's not just about value investing, but it's about life and um, stoicism. Terrific, terrific book um I I, I I really enjoyed it um hold on we got a qu- more question here i think coming in oh a couple questions i sorry i was so i want to go to uh here we go mq uh and then igor mq the floor is yours mq unmute yourself please thanks george appreciate the opportunity to ask the question thanks for hosting in the space and Vitaly. thanks for being here um, I just had a question. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your investment process. Um, you know, how do you pick portfolios for clients? Do you do you tailor them individually? Um, if you could talk a little more about your like time frame and whether I'm curious if do you use options.
2: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, let me say, MQ, I think we kind of covered that a little bit. I don't know if you just came in them recently, but. If you did, about. I apologize, yeah. and I will listen to the recording I gave you. last night. I got yeah, out of work late. Yeah. If you wouldn't mind, I think we, we touched let, that. Me, let
1: me let me answer it partially. Like, what I'm, yeah. I'm not going to repeat myself, but basically, MQ, um, we look when we buy companies, we you know even though they're public companies, our process is not that much different as if you were analyzing a private company, it was the whole company. So, which is going to warm Bob Desk process, right? So I'm, you know, I'm not just buying a piece of paper, I'm, I'm, uh, I, look at, I have an attitude of buying a whole business as if I was owning for 10 years or longer. Okay, so, you know, so I, liquidity is my friend. In other words, if this company gets overvalued, et cetera, I'll sell it. And if it gets undervalued, I'll buy more. But I'm not looking to buy a company and sell it in six months. So we're looking to own the stocks for a long, long time. So uh, we have a long-term time horizon, and basically we're looking for three things. We're looking for, to buy. What does what quality mean? It's basically comp- basic companies that have good management, good balance sheets, significant competitive advantage, higher return capital. You know these kind of things. Um, and uh, we want to you know we want them to have some growth. In uh, growth, is part you know so it's, so you have quality, you have growth, and we want to buy them at a discount uh, to fair value. So we want to have a margin of safety. That's basically, and we just do this kind of one company at a time. That's, that's, that's our process.
0: Thanks, Vitaly. Uh, Thanks for the question, MQ. Hey, Igor, <laughs> e- Igor, on the floor is yours. Unmute yourself, please, Igor.
2: Okay, George. Uh, I want, first of all, to thank Vitaly from the bottom of my heart about on the book. I am also an immigrant from the Soviet Union that came around the same time. I do skiing so a lot of what he wrote was near and dear to me and some of the ideas that he put in the book really resonate with me uh Thank since you. we had a lot of similar upbringing and experience now the question that i have is related to how you incorporate macro if at all into your stock uh, investment since we talk a lot about you know bear markets and cyclicals not doing well and you know industrials you know and this and that right right so i know that you know if you go into recession right no matter you know how good your stock is right valuation wise and fundamentally it will likely go down because people just don't have the money to buy stocks, right do you care a lot do you care at all about it?
1: um okay so i'll give you three answers uh, what Seth Palmer, he said, uh, uh, we worry macro invest micro what does worry macro mean so I'm instead of trying to be uh, uh, worry about the weather uh, I'm trying to worry about the climate so if I worry about the weather meaning that I'm going to try to figure out what the economy is going to do in the next three to six months where the interest rate is going to be in the short term what the Fed is going to do in the short run, uh, this kind of thing. The problem is that, you know, like, you know, if you spend a lot of energy on trying to figure out what the weather is going to be tomorrow, that energy is going to be completely wasted the day after, right? So, and in all honesty, well, people are fairly bad at this. Like, we are. It's just very difficult to predict what the, you know, what the economy is going to do in the short run. Um, and uh, so what what we try to do instead is focus on big macro trends that are like, you know, that's going to be like climate change events. And then tweak our portfolio to do that or at least not to get hurt by that. So this is how we look at macro. Uh, this is kind of our approach to macro. And uh, and Igor, uh, time in the market is incredibly, incredibly difficult. And I don't think I've seen many people who've done it well more than once and it's kind of like the worst thing that can happen to you a lot of times. You get it right once and you feel like you got it figured out and then you know, it, you never did get it again. Uh, George, you remember the Elaine Gersarelli? Oh yeah. And she was a wonder in 1987 and then she never got it right since. You know, uh, and I can, there are hundreds of examples like this. Uh, so, so I, we don't time
0: the market. Thanks, Igor. Appreciate that.
1: Yeah, thank
2: but, you.
0: Yeah, good. So, Vitaly, I hope uh, we'll do this again before too long. It's been great. Um, again, Vitaly's new book is sold in the game. Uh, and if you want to uh, look into manage the money at Denver, it's dot uh, I-M-A-US, Imausa.com. US. Is that right, yeah. Vitaly? Yeah,
1: George. And by the way, and by the way, if you and Santuana... Uh, you buy the book, go to soulinagame.net, and there there are instructions how you can get five new chapters I wrote already after the book came out. So I keep writing and keep adding to it. So go to soulinagame.net and you you'll see how you can get you know, new chapters. And That's by the way, fun. I would really want to, George, I really want to thank you. You not just for this space, but you're doing a, such a wonderful job, you know, putting the spaces together and moderating. And I'm so thankful for you. And I think everybody is as well. All right, no, thank, is. thank
0: you for the comments. Hey, Vitaly, would you be up for doing a space on just classical music at some point? Sure. All right, well, well, you know, it may not be the most well attended space I've ever done, but...
1: Yeah, it's just going to be you. It's like I'm sure it's going to be you and I can have a phone call or we can have a space. we going to have as many people <laughs> listen. to <it. laughs>
0: You know what? Maybe we could have a, a special inducement We'll throw in some stock picks in between, the, in between, the, in between, That's the, in between okay. the music. That's so, right. There you go. Uh, All right, listen, uh, everyone. Listen, everybody. thanks everyone for coming out. Uh, we our next space is Thursday morning. It's gonna be a great space. turn. Edward Chancellor um, with his oh, new it's book. Phenomenal. Yeah, with with his new book. It's called The Price of Time. By the way, I'm getting killed this week, Vitaly. I had to read two two books. Like, I had to read your book, and I got to read oh my his God. book. I gotta read his so the, books,
1: the, so. so the downside, so the downside of your know, this, this social media fame is that you have to read more books now.
0: No, but you wanna know something? I, you know, people say, "Why do I do this?" This is actually, I learned so much from these rooms, listening to you know, I get to hear your latest thoughts. I'll hear a Chancellor's latest thoughts. So it, it helps me with my process. So oh, awesome. don't, don't oh, worry. Yeah. So yeah. all right. So 11 a.m. Eastern is our next space. Again, thank you, Vitaly. Good night. Thanks, everyone. Thank
1: you, thank, you, thank you, everybody, for listening. I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you.
0: Thank, see you on Thursday. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.